Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to all who are gathered here uh, this morning. I know uh, Easter is a time when sometimes family is back in town or we gather together or uh, they're just, we have many visitors on Easter. So it's good uh, to be worshiping together. So a happy Easter to, you, to all who are gathered here, a particular happy Easter and happy Resurrection Sunday to those who may be visiting among us. So glad that you uh, chose to make this gathering, this worship service, uh, part of your Easter celebration. We have those aspects of our Easter celebrations uh, that we love to, to love to do every year. You know, certain traditions, I'm sure you and your family have those things as well, that it's sort of, it wouldn't be Easter without this. Uh, so I'm sure many have maybe even done an Easter egg hunt already, anybody? Hunted for some Easter eggs? Okay, several kids and a few adults. That's really good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and for those folks, it wouldn't be Easter without an Easter egg hunt, right? Uh, for a lot of us like me, it has to do with the meal, right? There's certain things, you know, the ham is traditional on Easter. It wouldn't be, wouldn't be Easter without a ham dinner. Uh, I'm actually starting a new Easter tradition this year. It's wearing my, my Easter socks right there. Uh, Matt, where's Matt? Matt is joining me, I noticed, uh, with some pretty cool Easter socks. We have, you know, it just wouldn't be Easter. There are these essential elements. If you leave it out, it just wouldn't be Easter for us. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is writing to some Christians to remind them of the essential elements of the Christian message. Because they've left something out. Something that's absolutely essential. And as a result, he says, you guys are actually in danger of having believed in vain. Because you've left this out. You've left it out. And it just so happens that the very thing that Paul says is, you can't leave out. You've dispensed with something in the message of Christ that is indispensable. The thing that they've left out is the thing that we've come to celebrate and to worship Christ for this morning. The resurrection. The resurrection, not just as a nice idea or, or a storybook theme or, or something that, that really inspires us to do wonderful things. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His bodily resurrection, the historical reality of it. And so let's look at this passage this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and be reminded of this absolutely essential, indispensable aspect of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'll give you a chance to get there if you're not there already. If you want to use one of these Bibles, there's a rack over there. It's page 961, 961 in these uh, red Bibles over on the rack over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, and the Spirit of God tells us this morning, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Friends, this is God's holy word, and God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the word of God, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, we thank you for the reality that we celebrated at Christmas time, Jesus becoming flesh, the incarnation. Because we know that Jesus needed to have a body in order to live the righteous life we haven't been able to do. And in order to die, a real death that atoned for our sins. And in order for that body to be raised to new life so that all who trust in him could experience eternal life and fellowship with you. Spirit, we pray that you'd remind us of these incredible, eternal, praiseworthy realities as we gather around the word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, the Apostle Paul, you know, will note in the very first verse of this text, says that he wants to remind these folks. He wants to remind this group of Christians in the city of Corinth some 2,000 years ago in the, what is now Greece, but is part of the, the Roman Empire at that time and had been part of ancient Greece. Paul says, I want, to, I want to remind you. Now, sometimes we use that word remind sort of casually, like, hey, can I just remind you, would you just pick up the laundry on the way home? Just kind of a casual reminder. Uh, this is no casual reminder. This is serious. I need to remind you of something that's really important that you really shouldn't have forgotten. Sort of like, I need to remind you of your social security number. You're going to need that. You shouldn't forget what it is. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to remind you of your address. You really shouldn't have forgot it, but it's going to be an important piece of information from here on out. I need to remind you, Paul says, really of your identity, who you guys are. There's something vital you've lost sight of here. And Paul says it there in the first verse. I need to remind you, my brothers and sisters, of the gospel. The gospel. The good news, the message of Christianity. 
the essential message of Christianity. And notice Paul says, I'm not going to waste my time with any secondary aspects of it. I am going to remind you of the singular gospel. Notice how he calls it the gospel in verse 1. And then he says, it is the gospel which you receive, singular. In which you stand, singular. By which you are being saved. It is the word, verse 2. Verse 3, it is what I received that I delivered to you. And then at the end in verse 11, he says, so we preached and continue to preach, and so you believed. This is the singular gospel, and it includes this indispensable element of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if you look down just one verse further, we didn't get into it, but if you'll notice, just scan your eye down through chapter first, uh, chapter 15, you'll notice that Paul is going to continue to go on through this, out this whole chapter emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason is in verse 12. It says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of, from the dead? That was the problem. That was the issue here in Corinth. There are many issues. We've been studying over the last several weeks and months a number of these issues that the believers in the uh, city of Corinth had about 2,000 years ago. We've been finding out we have some of these same issues in our lives and in our church. And here the issue was they were denying a key doctrine or truth of the Christian faith. And that is that, that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. And Paul says, well, that's... That's a problem because the resurrection that is to come is vitally connected to the resurrection. The first and foremost resurrection, the only, the only time a person was ever resurrected never to die again, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you're denying that there's a future resurrection, you're also denying this key element of the Christian faith. The reason we're gathered this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, now, why would these folks have denied or had a problem with the idea of a bodily resurrection? Well, based on their cultural understanding and their sort of worldview, these Greek thinkers probably thought that, that the idea of a body being resurrected was just foolishness. Because in, in their understanding of the world, there was physical stuff, matter, and there was spiritual stuff, unseen stuff, so our souls. And, and the physical stuff was bad. It was evil. And the spiritual stuff, if it was pure, it was pure goodness. And so the fact that Jesus died, from their understanding, probably would have been a good thing. Because it separated his spirit from his body. And to get rid of the body would have been the ideal thing in their understanding um, in Greek thought. But the fact that he would be reunited with a resurrected body seemed crazy to them. Uh, if you recall, the Apostle Paul, before he had come to Corinth to preach the gospel, had preached in, in the, the capital of culture and of philosophy and thinking in the Greek world, namely the city of a Athens. And in Acts chapter 17, uh, we read about Paul speaking on Mars Hill to the philosophers gathered there. And at the end of his message, there were many Athenians who mocked him. And the very reason they did was this point, the resurrection of, from the dead. It seemed ridiculous to them. And no doubt if you lived um, down the river, so to speak, in Corinth, 
You wanted to keep up with the Athenians. You didn't want the Athenians to look down on you, right? Well, perhaps the Corinthians' attitude toward the resurrection was a little bit like my attitude uh, toward the terms and the conditions. Every time I have to update the operating system on my phone, I know you guys read the terms and conditions, every word of them, and if you don't check yes, unless you absolutely agree with every word of the terms and conditions of all those updates that we get. Well, I must confess here in church this morning that I don't read all the terms and conditions. And I just check them off, saying that I did. And I feel like it's not a big deal. You can correct me after church if you think it is. <laughs> but perhaps the uh, Corinthians' attitude toward the resurrection was sort of a checkbox. Yeah, that was on some doctrinal statement. I checked it off once. You know, I have my doubts about whether there's going to be a resurrection. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Doesn't seem sci scientifically possible. But the, the, the important thing is, I'm trusting in Jesus. And Paul comes to say here, this is absolutely vital. This is absolutely vital to the gospel, the good news, the essential Christian message. Paul says, I need to remind you of the gospel. It is, in verse 3, of first importance. Uh, the word that he uses there for first importance is just one word in Greek, protos. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the first thing. It's the prior thing. It, it's the superlative thing. It's not just first in order. It is first in priority. It's sort of like if you had three emails in your inbox that when you checked it after the service. Please check it after the service. Um, and there's one from Groupon. It has this week's deals in it. And there's another from an obscure African prince who will give you a million dollars if you simply forward your bank account information. <laughs> You've gotten that one, right? Um, and then there's another email from your boss making you aware of a position in the company that has opened up and she is encouraging you to apply for the position because you're great for it and it could really advance your career. Now, whether or not that third email is first in order, it is definitely first in priority compared to the other two. And Paul is saying that about the gospel. It is, this is your first priority above and beyond all things. And a key aspect of that, along with the cross, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't dispense with it. In fact, it should be precious to you because there's no Christianity without the resurrection. Skim down again to uh, the portion I didn't read and look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead at all, ever, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's what he said in verse 2. There's a possibility here that you have believed in vain. You can't dispense with the resurrection. A Christian, by definition, is a resurrection person. The Christ of Christianity is a resurrected Christ. It's why we gather not just on Easter Sunday, but it's why we gather on the first day of the week all throughout the year as believers. 
Uh, God's people used to gather on Saturday, the last day of the week. But with the resurrection and Jesus ushering in the new era and the new covenant, we are resurrection people who work who worship on the resurrection day, the first day of the week. Paul says you can't have Christianity. You can't have an unresurrected Christ. You can't have Christianity without the resurrection. Friends, that is the burden of this text that we're looking at this morning. It is the heart of the Christian message. At the heart of the Christian message is both a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb. And Paul says they go together. They're two sides of the same coin, and you can't take them apart. If you're here this morning, and you're not familiar with the Christian message, you've just never been quite sure what it all boils down to, I want you to listen, because this is it this morning. The essential of the Christian faith is the bloodstained cross of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb. And you can't have one without the other. They go gloriously together. That's our theme for this morning. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely indispensable to the Christian message. You can't dispense with it. Without the resurrection, the good news is neither news nor is it good. But because of the resurrection, the gospel, the good news is both true and it is transformational. That's where we're going to go in the rest of our time together this morning. Looking at the resurrection as both news and both and news that is good. So first, let's look at the resurrection as news. What makes the resurrection news? Well, what makes it news is that this news is true. I mean, that's our standard for the news that we read and the news that we watch on TV and we look at online. I know it's your standard and my standard for the news that it be true because we sure complain a lot when we think it isn't. Oh, I think that news is coming slanted from the left. Oh, I think that news is coming slanted from the right. We're all over it. We expect the news to be true. We think that that's, that's the standard. It is the standard of news, that it be true. And what makes the resurrection news is that it is true. It happened. Many people in the church of Corinth didn't think the news was true. Paul had written at the beginning of this letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 about the foolishness of the gospel and said, hey, what looks like foolishness to people is God's wisdom. And what looks like weakness to humanity is really God's strength. So don't, don't stumble over the gospel. The gospel is news that is true. It is the true story of Christianity. It is grounded in history, actual events. But not just events that happen, events that are precious to God's people, events that we treasure. Paul talks about a treasured deposit that he passed on to these folks in verse 3. He uses this almost technical language of passing on a body of truth. I delivered to you that which I received. There's this body of truth that I delivered to you. It is historical. It is real. And it has two aspects to it. I've mentioned them already, but Paul mentions them in verses 3 and 4. It, it's verses 3 and 4 almost 
form what many scholars think is an early Christian creed. Maybe at some point along the way you learn the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, and I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his only begotten Son, who was conceived, who conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried. On the third day he rose again from the dead. Now it doesn't that creed doesn't quite go back as far as the apostles. But this creed does. And there are two key elements in it. And the first is this in verses 3 and 4. Christ died and he was buried. That's the first key element of this confession of faith. He was died and the creed says he was buried. That's evidence that he died. That's what we do with a dead body. And so this is historical fact, but it's not just historical. Certainly not less than historical, but it is so much more. There is meaning to this. So Paul says of this death, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. He died because of humanity's sin. He was punished in our place because of our sin. He was a substitute. John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, there is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the final Passover lamb the Jews had celebrated. Now is the time of Passover. Jews continue to celebrate uh, this past week, Passover, uh, the, the, which remembers the deliverance from Egypt and that the, the people were protected from, from death because they killed a lamb. And its blood was washed over their doorpost of their home. That you were saved by the blood of the lamb. And John said, Jesus is the final lamb of God. And it's not one lamb who protects one family, but he takes away the sin of the world. Notice that Paul says that this truth of the Christian faith, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, he did so according to the scriptures. You might say, well, which scriptures? Paul, at this time, when he's talking about the scriptures, is talking about what we would call the Old Testament portion of our Bibles. Paul is actually one of the people responsible for writing a large portion of the New Testament, but that had not been all written and collected and canonized yet. And so Paul's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. He's saying, according to those scriptures, Jesus died for our sins. Well, in a very real way, he's talking about all the Old Testament scriptures. Because all of the promises and all of the figures in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus. In all of the sacrificial system where the Jewish people had to, had to kill animals in order to atone for their sin, but only for a time, all pointed to Jesus. Look at, or listen, I should say, to what the writer of the Hebrews says about that in chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. Talks about Jesus both being the sacrifice and the high priest who made the sacrifice. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, he entered into the tent, the place of worship, the temple, 
He entered one time for all time into the, the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, the outside that is, how much more the blood of Christ shed on the cross, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify not the outside, but purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. It all pointed forward to him. It was all fulfilled in him. But if Paul was thinking of a particular scripture, just one, I have no doubt he was thinking of the scripture that we read together just two days ago here on Good Friday, Isaiah 53, which speaks so clearly of God's servant suffering in the place of his people and for their sins. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us, everyone, we've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the reality of the cross. We remembered it together on Good Friday. That Jesus, as he suffered and died, particularly those three hours of darkness on the cross, the greatest pain he was feeling was not the crown of thorns. It was not the lashings he took on his back. It wasn't even the nails in his hands and his feet. The greatest pain that he was feeling was the rejection of his heavenly father. The greatest pain that he was feeling was suffering the torment of hell for humanity's sin. That was the anguish. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because he was forsaken, friends, we can be forgiven. Because it says right here, he died for our sins. He died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve so that through faith we could be forgiven of all that we've done to violate a holy God. And that's the first key aspect of, of Christianity, of, of the basics of Christianity. And the second is this, Paul, Paul says, that he was raised from the dead. He died for our sins. He was buried and secondly, he was raised. And this is the testimony of all four of the gospel writers in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus, after he died on that Good Friday, that he was placed in a tomb, that a stone was put over the entrance, that it was sealed, and that he was raised from the dead the morning, that Sunday morning. Listen to how Luke describes it in his gospel from Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, 
They went to the tomb. They were the women who followed Jesus, his disciples, still wanting to serve him after his death. They went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. There could be a lot of explanations for why his body wasn't there. And so while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Okay, when we're reading the Bible and we read about shiny guys, what are shiny guys in the Bible? They're angels. They're not guys. They're not humans. <laughs> They're angels. They appear, and as the women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the shiny guys said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. That's why his body isn't here. He's alive. This is a cemetery. This is a place for dead people. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Remember. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third, third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told of these things to the eleven and the rest. Matthew and Mark record the same thing. The angels uh, said to these disciples, remember, Remember, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. I would be put to death. I would be buried, but I would rise on the third day. Paul says as well about Jesus' resurrection on the third day, that it was according to the scriptures, and in many respects, according to the entirety of the Old Testament. But there's one particular passage that the apostles focused in on when they talked about Jesus' resurrection. It's Psalm 16. Psalm 16, a, a psalm of David. David, who was the king of Israel, whom God promised would send another king, an eternal king, a Messiah, whose kingdom would never end, who would descend from David. He looked ahead and he wrote in Psalm, in psalm 16, verse 10, about the Messiah, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. And the Apostle Peter, who's witness of the resurrected Jesus, is mentioned in our passage, picks up on that in really the first post-Pentecost uh, Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he says, brothers and sisters, I, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to, the day, to this day. In other words, he wasn't talking about himself when he said, this holy one will not see corruption. Being therefore a prophet, in knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he therefore saw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are his witnesses. And Paul says that right here, Cephas. That's, Paul talks about Jesus appearing to Cephas. That's Peter. And the apostles were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And here Peter connects that to this Old Testament scripture from David, that Jesus was, was vindicated. He was the king raised to new life. Romans chapter 1 uh, verse 4 says that God declared Jesus 
to be the Son of God through the resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he was his true king, true Messiah. That he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he sat down. Why do people sit down? Because they're done. <laughs> Their work has been accomplished. His mission had been accomplished. He had paid for the sins of his people. He had been risen to new life that he might offer forgiveness and redemption and eternal life. And Paul says we know this because he appeared. He made an appearance. Several people saw him. Did you notice in the text that he appeared to several hundred people at one time? And Paul says, you can go out and talk to some of these people. That would have been cool, right? Living back then, 2,000 years ago. Wow, really? Paul said that you were there. Tell me what that was like. You saw Jesus face to face. He had a body. He, he ate. He hugged you. A real human being, but, but, but not a body like ours that, that breaks down a resurrected body, a perfect physical body. And Paul makes special mention of Jesus' appearance to the folks that we call apostles, the, the founders of the Christian faith, people like Cephas or Peter, people like James, and Paul mentions the other apostles. They were witnesses. And they all died because of their testimony. Their testimony and their witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Paul says here, this is an absolutely indispensable reality and truth of the Christian message. And he says that to us. God says that to us this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely vital to the Christian message, to what the Bible is all about. You can refuse to believe it. You can call it crazy. You can say it's scientifically impossible. But one thing you and I cannot do is leave it out of the story. We cannot deny its importance to the apostles, the founders of our faith. They died for this. But what we can do, if we believe it, and we can gather like this, we can worship, and we can make the resurrection the, the focus, the, the focal point of our celebrations as we go out through this day. And whatever, that, whatever, whatever happens when we leave this place, that we don't leave the resurrection behind, that it is still the focal point. Friends, it's news worth declaring and it's news worth sharing. It's news. It's true. Well, secondly, what makes this news of the resurrection good? It's real news. It really happened. It is the truth. But it's good news. The resurrection truth, what makes it good is that it has power. It has power to transform. It, it has an effect. And there are lots of magnificent truths, items in the news that have absolutely no effect on you and me. This, this past week, I read a couple of different articles about Jupiter. Jupiter apparently is pretty close. We can see it better than we usually can see it. Um, and we know about that big red spot on Jupiter, right? But apparently they discovered a, a big cool spot kind of near the north, uh, the, the north Pole of the equator. And this giant cool spot is actually bigger than planet Earth. 
Can you imagine that? It's bigger than planet Earth. That's huge. That's, that's astronomical. I, can, I can't get my mind around that. And you know what effect it has on my life? Zip. You know what potential effect it has on my life? Nothing that I'm aware of. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has amazing effect for our lives. It has the power to transform us. Paul says, listen to these guys, these, these Corinthian believers. First of all, the good news of the resurrection transformed you all, and some of you don't even believe it. Doesn't that show it's powerful? This, this gospel of the resurrection, the, the, it totally changed you. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. This gospel that I preached to you, Paul had been there several years before and had preached the gospel, and many people had come to faith, and Paul says, this was the transforming effect of the message of the cross and the empty tomb. You received it. That has to do with one's past. You received the gospel, forgiveness of sins. Everything that you had done to violate a holy God was, was washed away. You were forgiven of it. You received the gospel by faith. He says, now you, you stand in it. All the trials, all the temptations in a believer's life, and Paul says, you stand firm in this gospel of the resurrection. And this is the gospel that will save you. It's a beautiful reminder that, that, our, that one's salvation goes on into eternity. I mean, there's certainly the sense in which we are fully justified when a person trusts Christ for salvation, trusts in his finished work in the cross as the covering of their sin and as the washing away of their guilt. That justification happens in a moment. But salvation has a continuous, ongoing effect, and there's a sense in which we won't be fully saved until our bodies are redeemed, until, we'll, until we're with Christ, until, as Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you will see me in paradise. And so the power of the resurrection has power to transform all of life, your, your past and your present and your future. All the time. If there's one thing over which we have no control and we're aware of it, it's time. Our past, full of regret. I shouldn't have. I wish I would have. And our future, we don't know what's going to happen. There's uncertainty. In our present, there, there's, there's doubt, there's uncertainty. And the power of the gospel that we hear through the mess, the power of the resurrection that we hear through the gospel message has the power to transform our past and our present and our future. Those who trust in the finished work of the resurrected Christ can have their past sins forgiven completely forgiven, can have a hope and a future to spend eternity with Jesus, with their Lord. 
and can know the reality of that today in the present. Hope, perseverance through the difficulties and the challenges that we all face. Friends, that's the power of the resurrection. Paul says to the ones he's writing to, it transformed your lives. And Paul says, it transformed my life too. Really learn a lot about the Apostle Paul as we kind of get into his head a little bit here uh, in the final verses of our text, beginning at at verse 8. Paul talks about these resurrection appearances of Jesus to the apostles, and he lists some of those apostles. And where does he list himself? Last. He says, I'm not even really worthy to be called an apostle. He seems to be questioning his own uh, legitimacy. He calls himself um, one untimely born. It's really a graphic word. It's the word for miscarriage. Because it's almost like I'm a freak. There is this sense in which I do not belong at all. And humanly speaking, Paul formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, was probably the most unlikely candidate to become an apostle. I mean, the apostles are the founders of the Christian faith. They're they're sent ones. They're they're people that, that Jesus sent out, spread the news of my gospel, gather God's people in. I mean, they're the, you know, we put their names on buildings and churches and name our kids after them. Paul was... Probably, humanly speaking, the most unlikely candidate. He says why. Because in his former life as Saul, he persecuted the church. That's exactly right. He persecuted the church. He was a rising star in the Jewish religion. He saw Jesus as an imposter, a wannabe Messiah, and he was disgusted by Christians, little Christ ones who followed this Jesus. And so, so Saul would, would help to put them to death, and Saul would hunt them down. And if you had asked people like James and Peter during that time, you know, who is sort of enemy number one, the biggest problem of the church, they would have all said Saul. Paul says, that's me, that was my past. I was a persecutor on the ch- of the church. He seems to almost be wallowing in his sin. Now, on the other hand, in verse 10, he seems to kind of be bragging about himself, doesn't he? I worked harder than any of them. Well, what's going on here? Is Paul wallowing in his sin? Is he, is he bragging? What, what's he doing here? He's not doing either. He's not really putting the focus on himself at all. What he's focusing in on is the thing he talks about three times in verse 10. Three times in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. Oh, it wasn't I. I mean, I worked hard, but you got to understand, that was God's grace that is with me. It's what Paul talked about when he wrote in the book of Romans in chapter 5, that where sin abounds... Grace abounds even more. And so Paul's whole point in focusing in on his failure and his inadequacy and his sin is not to wallow in his sin, but is to focus in on the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ. How does a person go from being an enemy of God's purposes 
to a radically committed servant of Jesus. It's only because of God's extravagant grace. The undeserved kindness that he so wants to show toward us. That was Paul's story. In the midst of persecuting the church, what he says right here happened. Jesus appeared to him. On his way to hunt down more Christians, to at the very least put them in jail or put them to death, Jesus, Paul, met the resurrected Jesus. He didn't just have a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met the real resurrected Jesus Christ, the one who said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul, who would become Paul, said, Who are you, Lord? For the first time, he calls Jesus Lord. Everything changed. Jesus, Lord and King, by virtue of his resurrection, Paul met him there and he was forever changed. Everyone who does meet Jesus is. In the Gospels, we read of a sinful woman, and she was. She had a terrible reputation. And she interrupted a meal where Jesus was the guest of honor. And she washed Jesus' feet through her tears of repentance and remorse and love for her Savior. And with her own hair, she wiped them clean. And then she took a bottle of extremely expensive perfume. No doubt she had been saving it for many years. She broke it open. She anointed Jesus with it. It's a beautiful picture of, of love and devotion. And Jesus pointed it out and said, in fact, that this is being done in anticipation of my burial. But there were those in that room, those who were self-righteous, and they had a problem with this going on. And Jesus said to them, you need to understand something. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And those who have been forgiven little, love very little. Was Jesus saying that, well, we have to sort of measure ourselves against other people? I've been forgiven this much, I'm this bad a sinner, but I'm a little bit worse than that person, but a little bit better. When we receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us and makes available, it is a total and complete forgiveness. It's a forgiveness of, of everything. All of the ways that we have failed to honor God. All of the ways that we've broken his law. When we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, it is a complete and full forgiveness. And so the response of any person who has been forgiven that way is an abundance of love and gratitude and service. Why Paul lists his failures and shortcomings. He knows he's forgiven of them. 
but he wants to highlight the grace of God. This is the kind of grace that is available from our God because of Jesus' death and because of his resurrection. This kind of power is available to you is what he's saying. And I believe what he's saying to each of us this morning is, do you know the power of the resurrection? Do you know the power of the resurrection? I want you to bow your heads as we pray together, if you would do that. And before we do pray, I want to ask you that question very personally and very individually in the quiet of this morning. Do you know the power of the resurrection? Have you experienced that power that forgives your sins based on what Jesus did by dying in your place on the cross and the power that grants you eternal life, a hope, and a future with you? You know the power of the resurrection, that it's real, not just something you've read about, not just a box you've checked, but you've met the resurrected Jesus. You can meet him today through repentance and faith. And what that looks like is simply speaking in your heart to God. It's called prayer. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.